Well, good morning, church. Good morning. I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Acts. Acts ch- chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd love it if you grab a paperback Bible that's nearby you there on the benches. And uh, let's follow along together. Let's uh, lean into what the Word has for us this morning. Now, before we read the Scripture, Acts chapter 8, I want to call our attention to something that we considered a few years back, actually. It's been probably three, three and a half, even four years ago that we spent a good deal of time in the book of 1 Peter, uh, a letter that's written to the elect exiles of the dispersion, those who had been scattered about and yet called by God. And in 1 Peter, we considered this, that God is not preparing this generation to be successful or affluent, but to endure. And to endure in such a way that we proclaim and take hold of the excellencies of Christ. I'm going to read that again, because it is, it's about the people of 1 Peter, but it's about also the people of Acts chapter 8. And we ought to consider, is it also true of us today? God is not preparing this generation to be successful or affluent, but to endure. And to endure in such a way that we proclaim and take hold of the excellencies of Christ. In the passage that we're going to read this morning, it becomes clear that the practices of the believers in Jerusalem in the first seven chapters of Acts, as they gathered in the Word and in prayer, in fellowship, and in generosity, these practices would be the very practices that would sustain them, that would be the means of their endurance as they scattered throughout the world to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. I just want to note what is not in that list of of practices by which the people endured. It was not their affluence. It was not their success in the world that sustained them. Rather, it was, again, word and prayer and fellowship and generosity that sustained them and emboldened their proclamation as they were scattered to the ends of the earth. Let's consider Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Please follow along with me this morning. It picks up in the middle of the action. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was said, was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy 
in that city. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word again. We thank You that this Word is true, and it bears witness to the glory and compelling joy of the Word of the Gospel, the Word about Christ, who is Jesus. Lord, we pray that that Word would inform us today, and that by Your Spirit's indwelling work, sanctifying power, Lord, that we would be transformed, and as a people informed and transformed by the gospel, we would become a people on a mission to point our communities to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word this morning. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Really, this morning we're going to look at primarily four verses that are in here, and the rest of it sort of fills out the story. We're going to look at verses 1, verse 4, and verse 8, sort of the, the, the bookends and the center of this section of Scripture. And one of the things I would encourage you to do is if you've been with us over the course of the past dozen weeks or so, do your best to call to mind what we have been seeing in the Scriptures. We're going to see a few threads and a few patterns that work their way throughout the book of Acts, and they're they're really coming forward now in our text this morning. Now, at the beginning of this passage, we see these words, and Saul approved of his execution. At the beginning of this passage, we have an introduction to a man who is named Saul. We'll later come to discover, some of you may already know, that Saul would become known as the Apostle Paul, Saul and Paul, really the same name in different languages as he traveled in a variety of areas. Saul stood by and gave approval as Stephen was stoned, was executed by by really a mob who is receiving the proclamation of the word. And this Saul, after seeing Jesus, this Saul who approved of the stoning of Jesus, of of Stephen, this Saul, after seeing Jesus and believing the gospel, would become the author of a major portion of the New Testament. So there's something that happens, and we're going to see it played out during the course of Acts. We see in verse 58 of the previous chapter, Acts 7, 58. You can look at it. It's just a couple of verses before. It says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, speaking of Stephen, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, surely, that event, that episode, left a mark on Saul. A mark that we would see appear later in his writings when he confesses that he is the worst or the chief of sinners. Surely that is part of what he was referring to. I mean, it's recorded for us by one of the gospel writers that Saul was overseeing the persecution of men and women being dragged off into prison. Saul knew the depth of his depravity. He came to know it very deeply. And he would also come to know the glory of the gospel of grace to forgive his sin. This is part of that story. But Saul would also come to know something else. Right here in this passage, Saul comes to understand the power 
of public proclamation of the gospel. Saul is not a believer in Jesus Christ. He is a persecutor of the church. But right here, he comes to understand the power of public proclamation. We can only speculate what impact Stephen's witness before Saul about Jesus, what impact that had on the life of this man Saul leading up to his eventual conversion. It would appear that the gospel here fell on hardened ground, and it was to his own condemnation. But it would also, as we continue to read Acts, appear that the Holy Spirit was not done with this young man named Saul. The Holy Spirit is telling a story that Saul has no idea about. And I wonder, what role did this public proclamation to the ears of Saul have to do with his eventual conversion? Now, if you look at verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day, on the day that Saul approved of the execution of Stephen, on the day that Stephen was stoned, on that day a great persecution against the church arose. On that day. Well, what day? Let's remember what that day was. On that day, Stephen gave a speech. And that speech was was a pretty long speech. Last week, Titus read it to us. And it was about 12 or 13 minutes long. And the speech's purpose was to demonstrate from the Scriptures the coming of Jesus. And how over and over again the prophets and others who came before who were bearing witness to Jesus were rejected. And when Jesus came, He too was rejected. And yet, what He gave, what His sacrifice purchased was the forgiveness of sin. That's the story that Stephen told. He bore witness to Jesus and His Gospel. That was the day. And it was the day that Stephen was stoned. That was the day when persecution broke out. You can see it in verse 54, again in chapter 7. Look at it with me. Chapter 7, verse 54, Now when they heard these things, that is Stephen's speech about the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That rage overflows into the death of Stephen, but that wasn't all. The rage of the leaders doesn't end at the death of Stephen. It says on that day in our passage this morning, it pours over into the streets. It pours over into the homes. It invades homes and it drags men and women off into prison. So it could be argued that Stephen sparked the persecution. It wasn't Saul It was Stephen's public proclamation that is met with the anger and the rage of the people who are what the Scriptures call enemies of the cross that sparks the persecution. It was on that day, the day that Stephen spoke boldly about Jesus, that persecution breaks out. you got to wonder if a couple people might have at least asked the question, couldn't he have tempered his words just a little bit? Could he have just gone a little softer? I mean, he increases in his tone for 12 or 13 minutes. Couldn't he have just said things a little bit more temperate? Couldn't he have just remained silent just this once and avoided all this hardship? Husbands and wives, men and women are being dragged off 
into prison. Instead, he presses even harder, and he proclaims even clearer and boldly, publicly, the proclamation of the gospel. He seemed to believe, Stephen, that making the name of Jesus known in the hope that the leaders would repent and believe was worth any risk, even that he would die or that there would be a persecution that breaks out in the land. It seems that Peter, that, that Stephen believed that proclamation of the gospel is worth any cost, and he paid it. He paid it for sight of Christ and His Word on His lips. Now, as I reflect on that, I realize a few things. We live in a time in which religious freedom is increasingly narrowly defined. Here's what I mean by that. It's increasingly being pressed indoors into private thoughts and inner devotions. You are free to be religious. I'm not talking about laws. I'm not talking about Washington. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about our cultural disposition about our faith, right? It's, it's less and less a public square reality and more and more a private inner conviction that you can have as long as it doesn't have any public implications. But notice that Stephen wasn't killed because of a silent prayer. He wasn't killed because he bowed his head at a particular time of day, though we could consider Daniel for this. Stephen was killed because he preached the gospel about Jesus Christ. Stephen could have prayed. He could have had quiet conversations off to the side, but he seemed to believe that there was a place in the culture for the public proclamation of the Word. Not even just for a bunch of people who already agree with you, but for an open, public proclamation. I wonder, a few questions. I wonder, as religious freedom is is restricted in a cultural view, will we be pleased to avoid hardship? Will we be pleased to avoid hardship by defining and narrowing our devotion to Jesus to public terms, or to private terms? Will we allow ourselves to avoid various hardships, various ways of being viewed in the culture by saying, I will just be a a personally pious, private Christian? The witness of the church in Acts makes clear for us that devotion to Jesus must also mean devotion to the public proclamation of the word by the people of the church. You'll notice it wasn't just Stephen that was rounded up, was it? And it's not just the apostles who have been thrown in prison now at this point, is it? It's men and women of the church. How do they know? It must be the public proclamation. It must be that they believe that devotion to Jesus is devotion to making Him known. Do you believe that? Do you believe that devotion to Jesus is a devotion to making Jesus known? What do you talk about? What captures your imagination? What do you think is glorious that you would share with another person? Is it Jesus? Is it isn't enough to say that Jesus is worth losing everything? You take away Jesus and, and I'll cling to him no matter what the cost. 
What we learn from Acts is we must also believe that you take away proclamation, and I will cling to the proclamation of His greatness at any cost. And I wonder, is one of the greatest costs that we will pay present is just inconvenience? Maybe the cost of our own simple comforts, the cost of a little time, the cost of a hobby, the cost of time in the morning to know that word to begin with. Devotion to Jesus is devotion to the proclamation of his gospel. Jesus, I'm sorry, Stephen could not have remained silent. For to him, to love Jesus was to make Jesus known. Now, if you look at verse 1, look at it again. We have Saul approving of the execution. We have on that day a persecution against the church arising in Jerusalem. And then it says that the church in Jerusalem was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's interesting. Scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That rings a bell somewhere in the Scriptures, it would seem. How about Acts chapter 1, verse 8? I encourage you, write that down in your Bibles in the margin there. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Jerusalem. Check. They've been His witness in Jerusalem. The apostles and their imprisonment. Stephen and his execution, the church and their persecution and imprisonment bear witness to the fact that they have been his witnesses in Jerusalem. That is what it is to follow after Christ. And then it says, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We're getting there, aren't we? The Holy Spirit is doing His work of moving His church from one place to the next, bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been to Jerusalem. Now we are in Judea and Samaria. Now here's something that's interesting about the fact that we find ourselves in Samaria. And specifically, Philip, in verses 4, 5, 6, we see that Philip is given as an example, as a man who is now in the city of Samaria, and it pro- he proclaimed Christ to them. Now, you might remember that there is a great divide between Judea and specifically Jerusalem and Samaria. This divide goes all the way back to a split between the northern and southern kingdoms in the history of Israel. An ongoing animosity between two kingdoms that ought to be brothers together sharing in the worship of God. A great divide that goes back for centuries at this point. But in more recent times, it refers to an intermixing uh, with the Gentiles that was prevalent among the Jews that lived in Samaria, and more specifically, a religion of the Samaritan people that was highly syncretistic. They lacked the temple and many of the institutions that marked what the religious leaders would call the purity of the Judean religious practices, the practices that that would happen in Jerusalem. Those things were lacking in Samaria. But here we are, Jews that would would take their time to go around Samaria in order to get to the northern parts of the region, just to avoid contact with these dirty, unclean people.
people. Here we have the Jews of Jerusalem fleeing to Samaria. That's profound, friends. That's no small thing. It's not just a note about a geographic location. Pastor John Piper in Minneapolis, Minnesota, he says he sees in this passage how persecution can actually lead to racial and ethnic reconciliation. I want you to see how this works in this passage. I I was looking at one of his sermons on this passage and I thought, that's a stretch. (laughs) How is racial reconciliation in this passage? Then he began to explain some of what I just shared with you. That as the church themselves become outcasts, they are pushed out to join with others who are on the outside. As the church discovers that we are not on the inside of the culture, we are not the power players, this is not our city, we long for and await a city that is to come. As we begin to realize that in the midst of persecution in this city, in the world, we begin to realize that we are outsiders. We begin to see the plight of the outsider, the one that we previously viewed to be outside even of our reach. Jerusalem Jews, because of persecution, find themselves in a place they would never have previously gone. And here they are, Philip and many Jews from Jerusalem in Samaria. But now they've been kicked out of comfort and safety. They've gone to Samaria and they're going there. And as they are going, they're preaching the gospel. What happens when you preach the gospel and people believe? You find brothers and sisters in places you never would have expected. And you're astounded, you're amazed, and you begin to love one another. The suffering suffering was breaking down the dividing wall that was here. It was, it's as we realize that as believers we're exiles and outcasts in the world that we will find it easier that we might even be compelled to go to the alien and the outcast and preach the gospel in the hope that we would find brothers and sisters there. You see, we, we find that that with the alien and the outcast, we both have the same need. We're both looking for a home. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. And we, we bear witness to the fact, hey, I have no home in this world. And now I see what that might look like for you as an outcast, as an outsider to a culture that is, is powerful around us. You say, but you know what? Well, I have no home in this culture. I found a place to rest. We begin to bear witness to Christ. Share again from 1 Peter. We found when we spent our time months there together that God is not preparing this generation, a generation in a very divided time. It can't be that God is preparing this generation of believers to be successful or affluent, but rather to endure in such a way that we proclaim the excellencies of Christ. 
It's, it's as we see ourselves as outsiders and outcasts in the world that we won't use our successes and any influence that we have to gain a foothold in this world. We'll say, this world isn't mine. Now, I've already seen it. I don't fit there. I've been kicked out of there. This city is not mine. The church has already been prepared in our passage, in the chapters that lead up to it, has been prepared by the practices of prayer, the practices of being devoted together to the apostles' teaching, the practices of generosity and fellowship. They've been prepared to scatter. So when the persecution comes and the scattering comes, they are prepared to leverage what little the Lord had afforded them to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. I hope, and I do pray, and I hope that we would join together in prayer that the Lord would protect His church in our day, in our region of the world. May there still be safety. May there still be protection. May there still be a form of peace. But I also pray simultaneously that we would prepare ourselves by the same means to preach the gospel, whether it's in safety or in hardship. What are the means? The means are devotion to the Word and to prayer and to fellowship and generosity. And friends, if there is a devotion there, our affluence and success in the world are nothing because they're already leveraged for the sake of Christ. And so suffering comes and you're like, okay, what do we do now? Well, we're going to devote ourselves to the Word and prayer and the fellowship and to generosity for the sake of the mission. Nothing changes for a people who are devoted there. That is our means of preparation to endure. But it's not only our means of preparation to endure, it's our means of preparation to proclaim. Look with me at verse 4 as we move to the second part of our time together. Verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Well, isn't that interesting? Isn't the purpose of the persecution to put all the believers in jail? My guess is there wasn't enough room, if you do the math a little bit on the chapters that are coming out to it, but maybe scare everybody else underground into private little religions that would eventually die off. This is a fascinating and a profound theme that's developing in Acts as we read it the people that have been devoted to word and prayer and fellowship and generosity, these people with the Holy Spirit active among them, the Holy Spirit is doing something in their midst that that Luke, the writer of Acts, is bearing witness to. Listen to the movement of the word in the verses that I'll read in just a moment. The word, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the ever-present character It's a character in the story, and it's being woven through the fabric of the establishment of the spread of the church. Listen to the word at work. We'll read a few scriptures that we've already seen together. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and these were added to that number about 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Listen, the impressive thing about that verse is not 5,000. 
The impressive thing is it's by means of a word about Christ that anything at all happened. I don't care if it's one or 5,000. 429, and now, Lord, look upon their threats as persecution was beginning to build and grant to your servants to continue what? Faithful devotion. Yeah. But it says to speak your word with all boldness. You see, they understood that faithful devotion is to speak the word with all boldness. So even their devotion to prayer is a devotion to increase their devotion to the public proclamation of the word. Acts 6.4 But we will, the apostles say, devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Why? Because if the leaders are devoted there, they would have the means to bring that word to the people so that the people, including Stephen, would have that word to go and bear witness. Acts 6, 7, and the word of God continued to increase. You hear that? That's an interesting phrase. It's an, it's an indicator that the word is a character in the story. The word of God continued to increase. There's not some word that's being added to it. The influence of the word, the, the, the vocalization of the word, the spread about that word is increasing. And as the word increases... The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And we see in that preparation in the word and prayer and fellowship and generosity prepared the people to go out into the world. Now, this expectation of the word reaching the ends of the earth goes way far further back than Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You can look back in the story of Scripture, all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, the promise, the covenant that God made to Abraham through whom God would fashion a people. And why would he fashion this people? But to make known his word to them and through them, that through them they would become a blessing to all the families of the earth. How do I know that? Because that's the words that Jesus, that God gave to Abraham. Genesis 12, 2 through 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whom who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you hear the, where the word of promise is going? It's been going to the whole earth the whole time. That's been the trajectory of the word from the beginning of the covenant with Abraham. We see this promise's fulfillment taking place in Acts. And we still live in this age. We still live in the age of the public proclamation of the word. We still live in the age where the Spirit has filled the people of God for the proclamation of the word of God to the ends of the earth. We are watching its fulfillment. Are we participating in its fulfillment? We see the word being made known among the Jewish people now spreading to the ends of the earth by means of these Jewish messengers that are being sent out by God. In our passage, we see that spread begin in Jerusalem, go to Judea, then to Samaria, and we will see very quickly to the ends of the earth. Now look at verse 4 again. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
those who were scattered by means of persecution and fear for their lives and imprisonment and loss of livelihood went about preaching the word. Is this us when we scatter? We're already scattered. One of the things that's interested me about looking at Cross Point Coast as we've sort of plotted where these people live in Brevard County Honestly, if you plot the people who gather on a Sunday morning with us and gather in our community groups, if you plot it on a map, it looks like Brevard County got the measles and you can't tell where the outbreak began. And we are spread out through Brevard County. All right? We're already scattered even in the place that we live. But more than that, by definition, we are a scattered people. The homes in which we live are homes among the nations, among the peoples. And we live in a peculiar state. For those of you who have lived elsewhere, there's a good chance that you see more of the nations right where we live than you have anywhere else. We live among the nations, even our own. The lives that we live are not in the city of God. We are a scattered people to which the gospel has Come, just because we're gathered into this church does not mean that we are not a scattered people. Cross Point Coast isn't our home. I hope not. This isn't the the best home. This isn't what the church truly is. It's fullness. The Lord has a people in this city. We have brothers and sisters in this city. Who don't yet know the word, who have not yet heard, who need to hear again, just as Saul needed to hear again. Or did they already give up on Saul? Cross Point Coast is not our home, it's our people. It's a local expression of our devotion to word and prayer and to generosity and fellowship, but it's not our home. There are parts of this county that we cover that know little to nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are parts of this county to which we, in which we live that we don't even have to go to. We're in the middle of them. The question is, do they know the gospel? And are we proclaiming it there? So I was thinking about this, the, the parable of the third soil, the, 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 the third soil in the parable of the four soils in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4, came to my mind. In that parable, we have a sower, he's sowing seed. The seed is the Word of God, and he's sowing liberally, sowing all over the place. I wonder, could that not be us, just sowing everywhere we are and all the time? Not some grand strategy, but to sow and look for where it would grow up. Well, there is a third soil in that parable. And it says of that third soil, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. You hear those? The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things than the word enter and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I want you to notice how riches and desires for other things choke out the fruitfulness of the word. Here's what persecution does. It's really quite simple. Persecution removes the riches that prove so powerful to deceive. So that if you have the Word, all you have is the Word. I don't want persecution. I I pray for peace. 
But I, I don't want distraction. I'm so distracted. I don't want to consume anything but the Word, but I consume other things all the time. Pursuing them. It's a cause for our prayer of confession. A prayer of confession is to remember, Lord, I want to trust You. Increase my trust in You. Place Your Word in me and a desire for Your Word and its proclamation that overcomes these things. That without distraction, we could move unhindered in our proclamation. And so it makes me ask the question, is, is persecution the only way to remove the distractions? Because I'm thinking, it, I'm, I'm wrestling. I, I told the team before we began, I was wrestling. Where's the sermon in this scripture? Like, is the application point, so go get persecuted, all right? Go get persecuted. It'll remove the distractions, and then all you'll have is the word. Now go and be the church, <laughs> Right? It just, it can't be that. That doesn't make any sense, especially if you're supposed to seek the peace and prosperity of the city as, as was given by the example of the Jews in exile. Well, what about this? What if for people who, who live in an semblance of, of peace and maybe a truce with the culture of some kind, what if we withdraw the truce but instead lean into generosity? What if generosity became the means by which we let go of the things that persecution would take from us? What if generosity was toward one another? And I love it. I, lo- I love watching Cross Point Coast. Your generosity toward one another. If you would enter into those relationships, perhaps you're on the outside, you've even been here for a little while, but you haven't really engaged. Brothers and sisters, come on in. The generosity is beautiful. Time, talent, and treasure toward one another. Toward our community. I've watched that in my own neighborhood this week as brothers and sisters in the gospel have acted in generosity toward a neighbor in our community who is suffering. Generosity toward the mission of the church to lean in and say, what is the need? What is our shared need together? What is our agreed upon strategy and means to go about gospel proclamation? How can we be meeting of that need in generosity? In generosity to, among the missionaries of the world, that it's not just in our local community, but to the ends of the earth that we would be generous. Is it not by generosity that God could remove the deceitfulness of riches from us. That we would be prepared and engaged in the proclamation of the excellencies of Christ, whether we're scattered or not. We already know the practice of generosity. What if our preparation to be missionaries isn't for a few of us to save up money to go somewhere far off? What if our preparation to be missionaries was for all of us to be generous for the sake of the mission that our hearts would be fully engaged in the proclamation right now? That your generosity would be so leveraged to say, wait a minute, I have opportunities that would cost me almost nothing. And we go. Generosity could train up our hearts, each one, to send and to scatter right where we are. And look what happens. It's beautiful. Look at verse 8. 
In verse 8, it says, So there was much joy in that city. Much joy in the city to which proclamation came. As they go preaching the word in verse 4, Luke gives us an example in Philip. He goes to the city of Samaria. As he preaches the gospel and bears witness to the power of God, we see something beginning to appear among the people to whom he proclaims the gospel. We see fruitfulness beginning to grow up. I'm sure he sowed the seed all over the place, and most of the time it fell on dead soil, choked out, didn't take root. But in a couple people, there was a fruitfulness that brought joy to the people of God that were growing up there. We see something perhaps unexpected that is the result of great persecution and the ongoing generosity to proclaim the gospel. We see joy. The word joy, is, it's so important in this passage. It sounds like everything up to this point has been loss, persecution, generosity. But I know what you mean by generosity. You mean give up my stuff. Give up my time. Give up my likes. I know what you really mean. You're trying to take from me. You're trying to tell me that what Jesus does is He takes everything away and gives much joy. It's shocking. Is there anything joy-filled in this passage? You have the death of Stephen. You have men and women being dragged off to prison. But you also have the gospel of Jesus Christ by which we can be saved, scattering among the nations, and we have crowds paying attention to the gospel. Much joy. What I want you to see about the sacrifice for gospel proclamation is that the result is not sorrow. Those there is sorrow intermixed. You saw that they buried Stephen. And there was a great sorrow over them. But out of that sorrow is birthed much joy as the gospel that Stephen preached goes out and many are saved. Brothers and sisters are found who previously might have stoned Stephen are now his brothers and his sisters. The result is joy. So what is the application? In our context, in our region of the world, we know little of persecution, hardship for the sake of making the gospel known. That may not always be the case, but it seems to generally be the case today. For that we are thankful. But persecution is not the fire that burns in the hearts of men and women that erupts in joy. Hear that again. The reason the application is not persecution (laughs) is that persecution is not the fire that burns. Persecution is only a wind that blows it to another community. The fire is the Word of God taking root among a people who have been called by His name. I think the application of this passage is clear now. It's an application that comes out of the chapters that lead up to chapter 8. The whole time the believers in Jerusalem... They have been devoted to word and prayer and fellowship and generosity. It was the devotion there that generated substantial heat that became burning coals smoldering in the church in Jerusalem. So the wind of persecution comes along and it doesn't extinguish the fire. It blows it to Judea and Samaria and it keeps on burning. 
It's a flame that rages into an inferno of gospel proclamation. It spreads itself as the word increases. You see, the application of this text is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But insofar as we are to be here, scattered by God already into Brevard County, our public proclamation is stoked, is becomes burning coals by households and communities devoted to word and prayer and fellowship and generosity. Before we close, let's remember the central message of the word. Let's remember what it is that burns in the hearts of a church on fire with the word. We must know the word and increase in much joy in it. And this is the word about Jesus Christ who is crucified, risen, and ascended. It, the word is a word of a call to confess our sins, that apart from the sacrifice of Jesus, in the place of sinners, we are a people who are rightly condemned by a holy and just God. It is faith. In Jesus, that forgiveness of sin is in Him alone, not because of what we have done. The church does not add our devotion to anything to what He has done. He is the means of salvation alone. It's what He has done on the cross in our place alone by which we may be saved. And the Word is a life lived with Jesus as our treasure and our great joy. So that proclamation of His excellencies is the natural fruit of a people who treasure Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word that every one of us have been called to believe this morning. The call is to believe the word. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, the call this morning is to repent and believe. Saul heard that call, and it had a great effect on his heart. He raged, along with many others. I would ask, is there any effect of that gospel on you? My prayer this morning is that it would not be rage, but by the grace of the Holy Spirit, it would be repentance, belief. And secondly, this word that we have been scattered to proclaim as we are devoted in word and prayer and fellowship and generosity, the application, the implication, the call to every one of us is that it would become public proclamation. I'll close with this. There is something that I have not told you to do. There's something that I have not given you as an application point. Is exactly where you should do it, exactly which person it is, and what words you should use. I don't know. I know they exist. I know the content of the words. And I know they're in Brevard County. And so I want to commission you, church, to take seriously the call to devotion to word and prayer and fellowship and generosity. And in those places, as we scatter into community groups and into households, ask those questions. Lord God, who is it? Where is it? What do I say? And in those private conversations, may by the grace of God compelling His church with the joy that we have in His Word, compel public proclamations. Heavenly Father,
if there is a conversation that is had in which we realize one that we need to bear witness to, one that we need to call brothers and sisters to pray for us with, and there is even one who hears the word and is saved, we can join with the scriptures and say the word of God has increased among us and in our county, and there is much joy. Lord, it's a miracle. It's a miracle every single time. Lord, it would be a miracle if people who are prone to wander would increase in their faith and therefore faith-filled obedience in fellowship and generosity and in word and in prayer. I pray that you would prepare us not to be affluent, not to be successful, not to carve out a place for ourselves in this world. But Lord, it would be a miracle if a people who are rich by the standards of the world would have Jesus as our treasure. And Lord, I pray that a a community that sees a church that are leveraged after Christ, as they see that, they would say, what in the world is going on that people seem to treasure Jesus so? And we would open our mouths and proclaim the content of that word there. Thank you, Lord. We, We trust you. We pray that your spirit would blow and fan into flame the word of God in the hearts of your church. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.